Good morning and welcome to the original Loretta Brown Show, radio to open the heart, heal the soul, and ah, awaken the consciousness. Was that was that okay, Betty? I was needed that- it, yes, and I was doing a huge <laughs> exhale. I needed it. It's been a busy, fast-paced morning, but I love it. That's why we're here. So everybody, let's all exhale together and help Benny. <sighs> That's it. Right? Don't you feel better? Yeah. I sometimes tell, uh, like when I lead meditations, I tell people, just exhale, allow yourself to arrive, right? Because we are moving at a fast pace quite often. Anyway, I'm so glad that you joined me. Um, What a week. What a day. What a world. (laughs) What a cosmic... Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) All you telepathic people just think about what I'm thinking. Yeah. I love you all so much. That's right. Well, do they need a hint? Is this like, (laughs) do they need a hint? Oh, oh, there it is. Oh, the blue, the blue wave, the blue wave is now back. (laughs) Anyway, irregardless of where you you are on that, (laughs) remember that we are in an evolution of consciousness. Uh Uh-oh. So uh, hang in there, everybody. Just hang in there. I am the owner of Reiki Oasis, uh, located right here in the greater Seattle area for the last 26 to 27 years. And we do lots of wonderful things over there to try to help you in every way that we can. Um, Every Sunday, I do a Sunday meditation with Loretta at 11 a.m. And you can join me there. And then every month, I do a class for women that's called Temple of the Divine Feminine. And uh, this month, it will be the third Saturday, which is November 19th, from 1130 to 3.30. And it sounds like a long time, but I really think that we need the support of each other right now. And if we can get together in groups of any kind, it will help us during um, what is everything that's been happening during 2020, which is a lot of isolation and separation, especially in the area of the country that I live in, which is Seattle, King County, right? So I do mean it when I, <laughs> I have a, a, a sense of humor. I learned a long time ago that if we can learn to laugh a little bit at the craziness of the world, it just helps us. It really does. So sometimes we need to be serious and then balance that out with lightening up. I want to touch on astrology really quick, but I, I really want to get my guest on the show because we have such an important show for people and it will be about mental health and uh, it's a subject that I think a lot of people just don't address, and I'm thrilled to, to address it today. So before I get there, yesterday, for you sky watchers, you sky gazers, you know yesterday was November 11th, which is 11-11, which is a magical angel number of the heart and love, but it's a portal. And if you didn't um, get in on some of the wonderful things that people were doing for the 11-11 day, the energies are still here. It's not like a light switch on the wall where they switch on and switch off. But this is about aligning with the wisdom and the truth of your heart. And as we move forward into all that's going to be happening in the next six weeks and also headed into next year, I want to remind everybody, stay centered in your heart. It's really one of the best places for us to be. And this is a really great time to set intentions for the future we are helping to create it we're not victims here and uh, sometimes life is challenging but 
I don't know, sometimes that makes you reach down inside and find that special something that you brought with yourself to help help you and maybe others get through this time. So powerful energy right now for connecting with your guardian angels and your spirit guides and God and the divine and all of the goodness that is. So, so do take a moment to do that. Today, November 12th, we have a massive event in the sky. We have the third and the final Jupiter-Pluto conjunction for 2020. And this is the umbrella we have been under the entire year. It showed up on January 12th. It hit again partway through the year, and this is the last one. And the Jupiter-Pluto conjunction is challenging. Pluto is the Lord of Transformation or the Underworld or the Dark Knight of the Soul. Jupiter's the big daddy that expands everything. Hopefully it wasn't our waistlines. And, and anyway, the two of them get together. That means massive transformation, right? So um, that's Loretta's astrology for people that think like Loretta that need it in simple terms, right? But this is going to help you bring the year to a close. It's going to usher in about five weeks of rather unrestful energy that is seeking its balance after everything that has happened. So you know how it is if you have like a bowl of water and you slosh it. And then after you put the bowl down, the water still moves a little bit. That's kind of what's happening. That's the energy of it. And on a global level, this alignment brings change and a revolution to the economy and the financial markets. It's going to trigger weak spots and bring about changes that will ripple for years to come. And on a personal level, this alignment can shine a spotlight on your own financial situation, as well as anything that is still unresolved from this year. So it's a good time to tune into the energy of abundance, of goodness, of balance, and think about ways that you can create a more abundant life. And abundance is not just about money. Yes, of course, it's about money. But like I said, it, it, this is all going back to that heart thing and the higher consciousness. Can you take the higher road? Tomorrow, November 13th, we have Mars going direct after being retrograde in Aries since September. And I don't want to belabor the point, but Mars is the planet of action and fire and possibly war or battle, it's courageous, and it's at it, it's in its domicile, it's at home with Aries, and Aries and Mars love to take on a battle. They just want to do it. They're like, hey, let's go. Yeah, let's get it done. So Mars has been going backwards, and tomorrow it moves forward, and that means that anything that has been blocking, anything that you've had to go back and look at again and again and again, is now the truth is going to come out. We're going to move forward. There's a big push to get things done. And uh, it's a great time to make a list and tick off all those goals that you've been putting to the side. So it's also a very creative time. We're being asked to birth new, new ways of being, new worlds and new thoughts. And <laughs> I was laughing the day before yesterday, I was talking to someone and, and she was like, Loretta, I just never feel like I fit in. And I said, maybe, maybe, because that's your part um, to, to help build a world a little differently that you do fit into, right? In a good way. So think about that. November 14th and 15th, we have a super new moon in Scorpio. And this is the final of three super new moons. It is also the final regular new moon of 2020 as December will bring a solar new moon eclipse 
and I will talk a lot about um, astrology in December a little bit later. The new, new moon will be inching us closer to the new portal of high vibrational energy that will open up once we hit December. And under the power of the, the new moon, we may feel new seeds being planted. We may also start to recognize what needs to be done in order to rebuild the things that have come to an end in our lives. That sounds like uh, amazing new things. All of this is preparing us for massive energetic shifting that is happening from December 17th to January 2nd of 2021. So hang in there. We are the ones we have been waiting for. This is our wonderful planet Earth. These are the people we love. <laughs> and um, having said that, yeah, we're all going through a lot of stuff. I'm so glad to have my guest on the show today. She's been waiting patiently while I rattled on. My guest today has a very personal and pertinent story to share with us. One unremarkable night, Qatar Diamond's remarkably talented 15-year-old son walked into the living room and shouted, every musician in LA is stealing my ideas and went back into his room. Minutes later, he came back belt in hand and began whipping the couch and shouting with escalating paranoia. Little did his mother realize their journey into hell had begun. In her new book, Noah's Schizophrenia, A Mother's Search for Truth, Katar Diamond shares her own story of the challenges, confusion, and ineffectiveness she ran into for years as she sought help for her son's extreme mental illness. Katar Diamond is an author and a consultant in metaphysical lifestyle and health-related subjects. She is a member of her local NAMI group, and she is using her book as an ongoing national advocacy for those with schizophrenia, as well as for their family members. Welcome to the show, Katar. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thank you. I'm <clears throat> very ecstatic to be here. I'm learning things about you in the intro. <laughs> We're kindred spirits. <laughs> Isn't that lovely? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. So when your son showed such extreme behavior, because that is just like so startling, um, I don't even know what I would do. You, you really had no idea about mental illness, schizophrenia, or really what was wrong with him. Is that correct? Yes. In fact, as I um, narrated in the memoir, my first reaction was to try to be rational with him. All of a sudden, he presented me with this irrational paranoia, as well as some delusions of grandeur. And I thought, well, surely if you're rational with a person and explain things to them, they're going to, quote, come to their senses. And I have since learned that uh, when somebody's in a psychotic process, if you try to point out to them that they're not thinking clearly or that they are delusional, you're going to create a wall. You're going to create more distance and more suspicion. Um, actually, within the mental health community, we have one book in particular that we really like to read and recommend. It's uh, Dr. Xavier Amador's book called I'm Not Sick, I Don't Need Help. And it's for the parents and the family members and the caretakers to read, not the person with mental illness. But it explains uh, how you can speak with somebody in that crisis state 
to engender more trust and to help de-escalate and calm them down. And it doesn't mean that you start agreeing with somebody's delusions, um, but there's uh, there are ways to learn how to talk and probably any good therapist <laughs> knows that as well. Um, so that's one of the things that unfortunately <laughs> or fortunately that a lot of parents like myself have had to go through is that we have to relearn how to talk um, and communicate with our loved one. Yeah, I there's so much in what you just said there because you're touching on, you know, first of all, it's, it's the unknown. You don't really know what's going on. And right. it's kind of my understanding fr from the book and, and also from other people I've talked to that, you know, this can be misdiagnosed as, you know, and maybe, maybe it's drugs, maybe it's being a teenager, maybe it's, I don't know, you know, bad food, you know, something like that. So how long did it take um, to get the diagnosis of schizophrenia? Well, it's interesting because we got that diagnosis fairly quickly. Within a couple months, uh, he saw briefly one, one uh, psychiatrist who said it was schizophrenia, but then a month later, he said, no, it's just social anxiety. And he said to our son, it's okay if you go off your medication. And that was the beginning of <laughs> a whole you know, journey of getting a lot of bad advice, a lot of problems, a lot of setbacks um, from mental health professionals. Uh, so we went into this one gray area about six months where the treating therapist would he just refused to give a diagnosis and I don't think it was his area of expertise. So he was, you know, at lacking there. And then there were four rapid uh, hospitalizations uh, in one summer where it bounced back and forth between uh, bipolar disorder with psychotic features to schizoaffective disorder, which by the way means schizophrenia with a mood disorder on top of it. Um, and so we went back and forth, and then um, it really took another couple of years before we had someone who specialized in adolescent uh, schizophrenia who was able to identify it as such. Um, you say adolescent schizophrenia. How prevalent or common is adolescent schizophrenia? Well, there's a notion that schizophrenia emerges in the late teens or early 20s, and it might be in sync with, you know, hormonal changes and puberty development. It might be in sync with the incredible amount of stress that, you know, emotional young people put themselves through yeah. or the college years, et cetera. Um, but my son became ill kind of in the younger teen range, and it does happen. Um, and some people say it's, you know, drug uh, use stimulated. Uh, some people think it's still just hormonal. Um, this is a genetic predisposition. Um, it's a brain disorder. And so the, the youngest I ever heard of was kind of a famous case um, that was being handled by UCLA, where there was a little girl, I think her name was January Jones, and she became psychotic very young. They were treating her when she was six years old. Um, her father ended up writing a book, a memoir as well, um, just I think in the last decade. Uh, but that was considered really, really off the chart for such a young child to be clearly schizophrenic. So usually we say the late teens, early 20s. 
um, for the young male brain, which still is developing up until age 25, a lot can happen. Um, and females tend to have it emerge a little bit later in life, but that's the spectrum. So schizophrenia then, what would you, how would you diagnose it? Cause you know, a lot of people have, I, I was going to say maybe a, a negative thing. Like the minute you say schizophrenia, I kind of think a lot of people stop listening. Mm -hmm. they're, they're like, Oh, crazy or something. So what, what is schizophrenia? Well, it's actually uh, a cluster of different uh, symptoms. And that is one reason why it's so hard to diagnose. And, uh, there's, there is a range, though, where somebody, can, and they have to exhibit those symptoms for a period of time, like some, some of the symptoms they need to be exhibiting ongoing for a month or six months, but it is, you know, it involves uh, hearing voices. Well, actually, the hallucinations can be auditory or visual, olfactory, or all of them, like my son does hear and see and smell things that aren't there. Um, being out of touch with reality is, you know, one way that it has been described. And so there are positive symptoms and negative symptoms. The positive symptoms are in that category of delusions and psychosis. Uh, the negative symptoms can be just as troubling and just as uh, debilitating, where people, um, they lose a lot of their social skills. They uh, stop performing what we call ADLs, activities of, of daily, daily living, living, where people just, they forget to shower or change their clothes. Personal hygiene goes out the window. They don't appear to have empathy for anybody and they're kind of lost in their own world. Um, lack of concentration. In fact, my son initially was telling a number of doctors that he was meeting with that all he had was ADD. That's all that happened to him. And he was never a child that had ADD. In fact, he had better than average powers of concentration. But this was the way he was experiencing the fact that he couldn't remember anything. His short-term memory was just blasted away. Um, and so there, there's a variety of symptoms. But going back many, many decades ago, people thought schizophrenia was the same thing as having multiple personality disorder, mm -hmm. which is also very jarring and scary to, to witness, you know, that's true. Um, but schizophrenia itself, um, it, you know, it has that component that is kind of scary to the average person. If they, if they don't have a reference point of the person that they used to know and love and, and know what their baseline is, and they just encounter somebody on the sidewalk, um, you know, who's talking to themselves or growling at other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it can appear very scary. And uh, the person is lost in their own internal world. Um, I had an experience once shortly after my son uh, became ill, where I had a nightmare one night. And when I woke up, I was still kind of experiencing it, but part of my mind was saying, uh, no, no, that didn't really happen, but did it? And part of my mind said to me, sit up in bed and you will wake up. I sat up and I was still having the same incredible fear of what was going on in my nightmare. So then a part of my mind said, stand up and you will wake up. So I stood up. I was still completely freaked out. 
my mind said, go to the kitchen, get a glass of water. So I did that. And after a few minutes, I sat down on the kitchen table and I, I started to cry because I realized that I had experienced this delusion for a few minutes where I did not know if what had happened in my nightmare was really true or not. And I sat back and the reason I cried is I thought, oh, my God, this is what somebody this is what my son might be experiencing when he is absolutely convinced that something has happened or is happening to him at that moment that isn't. So I kind of thought it was a blessing to have that experience because otherwise, you know, we're just, we're trying to be sympathetic, but we don't really know, you know, what it's like to have those delusions or hear voices. Well, thank you for that illustration because um, while you were talking and I, I was thinking about this earlier, you know, for us to try to understand, you know, what's going on with your son as well as other people's schizophrenia, that, you know, for us, like you say, to experience something that may be what he's going through, um, I think that helps us. It helps us a lot. And you also said something in there that I want to point out, and that is that your son in his own right has br brilliance or intelligence, right? And I think a lot of people forget that there are amazing people who have had schizophrenia or other mental illnesses who have contributed amazing things to the world. Right. In fact, one of my um, favorite uh, examples to relay is that Albert Einstein's son, Edward, had schizophrenia. Uh, and before it emerged, he was a phenomenal musician. He also wanted to be an astrophysicist but he ended up spending most of his adult life in what used to be called insane asylums. Yeah. And, you know, we've gone throughout history where people with mental illness were demonized, uh, where they were treated like garbage. Now we're in this weird state where we think we're being compassionate by letting people be as crazy as they want to be, as if mm. it was a choice. So people aren't getting the mental health care they need because People don't want to return to the days when people had involuntary treatment, et cetera. And so we've interpreted it very different ways in society. Um, and, you know, it sounds like you have an audience that's very receptive to spiritual matters. There were times where, you know, the, 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 the village schizophrenia, schizophrenic might have been seen as a shaman or a healer. They're right. talking to God directly, you know, so... It, it swings both ways in terms of how we've um, how we've looked at people with mental illness. And you reminded me also that I've been a part of some training seminars and also their law enforcement, the ones that mm. are going through crisis intervention training. They actually have this, they create this setup where you try to have a conversation with somebody sitting across from you, but in the background, somebody else is talking and to give you that experience of how difficult it is to just communicate and stay focused if you have this background noise and distraction especially if somebody's saying or whispering you're a piece of garbage you don't deserve to live why don't you just kill yourself and so it gives people wow. again that experience of what it's like to have your subconscious mind fully active while you're awake uh, yeah so it's it's something that 
we can all benefit by learning more about. <laughs> I, I love your illustrations. Um, they're easy to understand. And yeah, they're pulling me right into what, what is the world of the schizophrenic. And I, I'm also thinking to myself, what a travesty, I don't have a better word for it, the insane asylums and how we have been very uh, quick to throw people into an insane asylum and lock the door, right? Mm -hmm. And right. just just let them live in a very terrible way, right? Um, before your uh, son had this incident when he was 15, right? Had he mm -hmm. demonstrated any sort of symptoms or anything that would have made you think um, there was something uh, wrong or different about him? <laughs> no, I mean, I was going to make a joke saying the only the only suspicious thing is that he was incredibly funny and I thought he was going to grow up to be a comedian. But uh, I mean, there's truth to that. I mean, a lot of professional comedians will tell you they struggle with the depression and blah, blah, blah. And it's a way of coping, obviously. But uh, no, he was better than average. He was uh, he excelled in school. He had tons of friends. He was very popular. Uh, teachers loved him parents of his friends loved him. I loved him to the point where I was living vicariously through him to some extent. <laughs> you know, really, I thought I thought I was raising the next Eddie Van Halen. And, and uh, so I was really blindsided when he did become ill. Um, it came on pretty suddenly over a period of months, the summer he was 15. And we also, you know, I don't really have a close relationship with uncles, aunts, or any of my nephews or nieces, there may be mental illness in the extended family, but not ah, in the okay. immediate family. So that's different from, from other family situations where they know that the mother or the grandmother or the uncle had schizophrenia. And so if it emerges, they're not 100% in shock. You know, they know. Um, but we, we were totally taken by surprise. So Yeah, and I, I'm hearing in there too that they're there can be some genetic markers, the question. Yeah. Right, it affects yeah. about 1% of the population across all um, racial and socioeconomic and ethnic groups. And, and some ethnic uh, groups handle it better than others. There are some where it's incredibly taboo and it takes a decade to get the family members to go get help and therapy because they have so much shame around it. Yeah. Which is unfortunate, you know. Yeah, the shame. Um, I think that goes for all mental illness to include depression, right? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, during COVID and the 2020, I mean, a lot of mental health issues have jumped to the surface and and I think people are, are either reluctant to reach out or they're having an episode and they can't reach out, right? You know how that is. So anyway, we're going to take a station break and you can pick that up when we get back. This is Loretta Brown, my guest today, Qatar, Qatar Diamond, her book, Noah's Schizophrenia, A Mother's Search for Truth. And I just think this is such an important and powerful subject. Uh, I have a feeling that a lot of you deal with people with schizophrenia and, and often you have no place to turn and know where to go. So first of all, I recommend you get the book and read it, everybody, because it's it's informative. And then um, don't go away because when we get back, we're going to get more into Qatar's um, powerful story. We're going to take a station break. Did you know that Reiki healing can be done at a distance? It's true. So let Reiki Oasis focus powerful energy to help relieve your stress, grief, 
sadness, anger, and so much more. Convenient, personalized treatments at a distance can increase lightness of being. During your appointment, find a quiet place to lie down or sit to receive healing energies. If you want help with your dis-ease, visit ReikiOasis.com. Harness life's energy. Visit ReikiOasis.com today. Hi, I'm Dr. Shelley Flace with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. The nicotine in e-cigarettes is addictive and can harm brain development. That's why I worry about teens who try e-cigarettes. Many young people use pod-based e-cigarettes like Juul, which have high levels of nicotine. And because teens' brains are still developing, they can quickly become addicted. The tobacco industry uses fruit and candy flavors to attract young people, often turning them into lifelong users. For more, visit HealthyChildren.org. Have something important to say? Want to help improve our world? Need to promote your business uniquely and effectively? KKNW is the answer. Our staff helps broadcasters and podcasters create professional-sounding audio. Bring your talent and let our experts help you craft a radio show or podcast that best delivers your message. Learn more at 1150kknw.com. That's 1150kknw.com. KKNW, talk variety that's live and local. Alternative Talk 1150, here to uplift your day. Thank you so much for that, Van Halen. Yay! Wonderful. Welcome back to the original Loretta Brown show. I'm Loretta Brown. You can find out more about me at ReikiOasis.com and of course at uh, uh, Loretta Brown show, KKNW. Uh, my guest today is Katar Diamond. Her book, Noah's Schizophrenia, A Mother's Search for Truth. So it's about her son. Um, and, and I want to just explain. So your son was quite the musician and, and, and the importance of the Van Halen music and all of that is <laughs> that he wanted to do that, right? And I think he went through a period of time where he kind of thought he was different people. Yeah. Um, well, in it, when he had a psychotic break and I wasn't really sure what was going on, he would go into his bedroom, he'd listen to David Bowie, and then he'd come out of his room and say, now I'm David Bowie, or, you know, he'd go in his room and now I'm Leonard Skinner. And, and so I didn't know that night, that was very early on, and I didn't know if he was joking or if he was really having, you know, some kind of internal experience where he thought that by listening to the music that he became that individual. Um, but uh, he, prior to that, he would play his guitar for hours, and I'd walk down the hallway, and I would be thinking, is that the radio, or is he playing? And I'd open the door, and he would be playing, and I was, wow. you know, um, I mean, objectively, he was a great musician. His, his teacher used to say, you do know he's going to be a professional musician one day, don't you? And I was like, well, maybe, yeah, because uh, he was so good, and um, he still has his musical skills. Um, in fact, someone just gave him a banjo <laughs> the other day. So aside from guitar and bass, um, plays drums. Now he's learning banjo. You know, he's multi-instrumental talented. Yeah. That's really great. I'm glad he's got the music. I'm and glad that's, he's got that. Mm -hmm. That's almost a cliche. A lot of uh, people with schizophrenia are, um, very artistic, very creative. And then some of them also are very um, left brain too, where they are, you know, they understand science, mathematics, astrophysics. They can be very, very developed in certain areas. Um, some of them can compartmentalize their intellectual powers 
um, with what may be going on with them more emotionally, whereas others can't and they kind of fall apart completely. So depends on the person. Um, can you talk a little bit about what a dual diagnosis is? Okay, I think a long time ago, dual diagnosis meant that you had two ongoing, let's say, mental illnesses like uh, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. However, now, more recently, it implies that somebody has a substance abuse disorder as well as a mental illness. And unfortunately, that's very common. Um, we use that term self-medicating, yeah. and it's extremely true, you know, for people with mental illness, um, although it rarely goes well. You know, it usually <laughs> makes the symptomatology worse. Um, and uh, so that's what dual diagnosis means. Um, and in fact, one of the little tidbits of, of recommendations that we give other family members, if, if their loved one is dually diagnosed or if they suspect that, these days, they have to be careful in how they approach that uh, with mental health providers, because if they overemphasize the substance abuse aspect, they will get um, parlayed into rehabilitation programs, sober living, 12-step programs. All of that's really good, but not at the expense of the mental illness component right. where they might need to be taken care of at, in that angle first. So there's a lot to unpack with that. Yeah, that I was situation. just going that, that, yeah, that, yeah. Complicated is the small word I'm going to use for that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your journey. You know, once that he came out and was having these psychotic episodes and, and your book is just, by the way, I really enjoyed reading it. It's, it's, it's kind of riveting. And I am, um, I have to be honest with you, sometimes I sort of skim through a book, but with yours, I was like, no, I have to read every word or something because every paragraph is jam-packed full of your experience with the system mm -hmm. and, and what happened. So um, I don't even know where to begin with that. I'll just add a ge general question and you jump in there and, and, and add whatever needs to be added. How many group homes did Noah stay in and can you talk about these places, describe them, what were their functions, and what was your actual experience? Right. Well, early on, I was trying to figure out what would be the best accommodations for him. And, you know, reading the memoir that initially we sent him away to a high school out of state that was supposed to help people with mental, young people with mental illness, and he got worse there. And so you know that I had this whole journey, one frustration after the other. And that is another dilemma that family members go through where they have to try to figure out, is my loved one going to do better living at home with people who know him or her and care for him or her? Or are, are there going to be family dysfunctional things going on that make it worse? So should we put this person in uh, what they call a board and care? Um, I've come to find out by talking with a lot of other people around the country that not every state or city or county has these board and cares, but in California we do, and uh, there's good and bad aspects to them because there's certainly better places for people to live than on the street, but there's a lot that goes on in the board and care system that's not therapeutic and may even set people back which I think happened with my son. And yeah. so he was in about a dozen of these board and cares or dual diagnosis centers, which didn't really help the dual diagnosis part at all. Um, and 
So the typical, the t there are exceptions, but the typical board and care is a house or an apartment building that's been converted into a place where people with serious mental illness can live. And uh, like in one of the first places my son lived in, the, the apartment conversion took what might have been a one or two bedroom apartment and they carved it up into about three different bedrooms. Like I think my son was, his bedroom was maybe part of what had been the living room of the apartment. And most of these are in rundown uh, areas, crime ridden. There's always a liquor store around the corner. Um, they're not in the more affluent, nice areas of town because there's a lot of what we call nimbyism, not in my backyard. Uh. And people who advocate to not allow for board and cares to be in their neighborhood. Um, and then because of the cost of real estate, they just end up being in really dumpy places. And then they often are understaffed or the staff is, could even be people who have mental illness themselves. Um, you know, there's that cruel saying, a hospital run by the patients. <laughs> well, we, we saw a lot of that. And Isn't there uh, a movie about that? I don't know. <laughs> anyway. Right. And so, you know, it's a place where people can get meals and they're not very healthy. They're worse than hospital food. It's a place where someone will hand out their medications, but they can't enforce it. Although if somebody doesn't take their medications and they become psychotic, that's an excuse for the board and care to be able to evict them. And so they're not, they're not therapeutic environments. They're, they're warehousing people. And most of them will have a psychiatrist who will come once a month or maybe once a, meet, a week if it's a large facility to try to see everybody for five minutes once a month. And usually they're getting feedback just from the person who has the thought disorder. So the person may not be relaying to their own psychiatrist exactly what they need. There are so many ways that a person can fall through the cracks and, and get inferior care, but that's, you know, that's the board and care system. And uh, so my son went through quite a few of them. He, he was causing property damage. He was frustrated and punching holes in the wall. And he was smoking in places he's not supposed to be smoking. And, and so, you know, it, it got to the point where his, um, his reputation was preceding him. Oh. So just like any landlord, they're going to want to know, why were you evicted? Why do you need to move? Why do you want to move in here? So it got harder and harder to find places for him to live. Uh, yeah, so that was, uh, that's, you know, that's just one avenue some people take. Um, and that's what's available also to people who have Medi-Cal or Medicare uh, public insurance. For private insurance, some people are able to go up a notch or two and be in programs that are, that are nicer and more accommodating and, and more comprehensive. But that doesn't go on indefinitely. The insurance cuts people off, um, usually before they're stable and before they really have the tools wow. to um, continue being stable. So, so the, the system is not so good, let's put it that way. No, no. no. It, it's hard to get hospitalized because what a lot of people need to know is that Medicaid uh, does not cover psychiatric hospitalizations. So the, it's called the IMD exclusion. And if you ever have the opportunity to vote <laughs> to uh, put that back in there so that psychiatric care is covered by Medicaid and Medi-Cal, it's an important feature because the hospitals don't make any money. That's why they're turning people out after 24 hours or 72 oh, wow. hours. 
they're losing money by having somebody sit there get trying to get stable on medication or treatment. And then after the hospitalization, uh, the treatment plan, the discharge plan is often very tenuous where people don't get the follow-up care they need. And that's why we have recycling, relapse, and it does answer why we have so many homeless, mentally ill people. That's like the end of the road for them. And uh, it never used to be that way. So that's our mental health care system. Well, I I was going to say, you also point out in the book at, at one point that I believe your your son had to wait in the emergency room five days to get admitted because a lot of hospitals have shut down their psychiatric wards or he was waiting for a bed or something like that. Right. At a very prominent hospital in Los Angeles, I shouldn't say the name. I don't want any liabilities coming at me, but I he called me from the pay phone, you know, and it's like, where do they have you? Like, are you in a broom closet or something? I mean, they, they didn't even have a space for him. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, you also share in the book a lot of <laughs> bad, bad therapists. Could I say that? Psychologists, uh, wh- whoever they were, but you, you got a lot of bad advice. Right. And it's, yeah. you know, again, my sort of sarcastic sense of humor. It's what happened to my son and I, our dealings, with the psychiatric world is enough to make a person paranoid. I mean, at a certain point you say, is this just incompetence or is this really sociopathy on the part of the mental health provider? Like what is really going on here? How can they, why are they in this profession if they're so cruel and so not empathetic? Right. Are they just burned out from their job or, you know, what's going on? So, yeah, I mean, having a great psychiatrist is gold. Everybody wants one and they, they are out there. Um, I, unfortunately, I had one psychiatrist read the memoir and he said, everything that you are saying happened to you and your son is absolutely true. I can validate it. I've been through that, you know, at facilities I've worked at and, and the complaints I've heard from other parents. He says, but you know, you have this tinge there where you think that, you know, the mental illness industrial complex was one term I threw out. He says, he wanted me to change that. He says, there's no conspiracy going on here, um, and which I knew, but, but he, you know, he, he didn't want to lend his name of recommending the, the book and giving a testimonial because he thought I was a little heavy handed. And- I, I like that, the mental health industrial company. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When you see how things yeah. just sort of roll along on a conveyor belt without people getting help and, and also just the money aspect. I mean, we can, we can prove that it costs less to take care of a mentally ill person than to put them in jail. It costs about half the amount to put them in jail. And yet, why is this happening? You know, if you don't care about the person for the love of humanity, at least from a financial standpoint, you would think that all these legislators and board of supervisors would take note that, wow, if we just take care of people from the beginning, it's going to cost less. Yeah. Common sense, you know? There's a there's a lot in what you're saying. I wanna I wanna ask you a question, which I know a lot of people are. It, it kind of goes back to your your comment earlier about is it better to have them live at home? Is it better to find them a place to go to, even if this place is not so good? And 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 it's also my understanding that 
you know, Noah would often, you know, get himself evicted and then he, he walks out and then he goes and does this and he goes and does that. Um, you at some point had to really come to terms with having him stay at your place or not stay at your place. So what was your deciding factor on that about whether he could live with you or not? Well, you've made me think I should probably uh, create some kind of major checklist, you know, that a family member could check off or have someone objective help them. Because you don't want a mentally ill person living at home if they are going to be literally a danger, if there's potential for violence, if there's other family members also who are being traumatized. There's a lot of brothers and sisters out there who feel cheated out of their own childhood and their own parents because there was so much drama and crises around the mentally ill person. So yeah. each each family member, you know, or each family has to decide based on their own community's resources, what is the best for this person? Um, because sometimes mentally ill people actually do respond better when they're not with their family, let's be honest. Um, so it varies. Now, I had such a bad experience, and my son did too, with the board and cares that I'm going to try to do everything possible to keep him from ever going back to one ever again. Um, but there may be some that are actually really good. In fact, I remember calling one. Um, it was probably about 30 miles from where we lived. And they said, we almost never have an opening. Uh, we might have a three or five year waiting list because people like it here and they stay here, you know, wow. so it, it just depends. And it also depends on someone's level of functionality. Um, there are some people with schizophrenia who still go to college, they still may be able to work, they may need a little prompting and support, they may need a case manager. Um, and then they can be, you know, they can be fairly functional um, and stable. But other situations, it's not safe and it's not therapeutic. Um, I have one friend whose son was so bad off living with the father that um, they were practically slipping the food under the door. And oh. it got to the point where um, there was a medical emergency. This person was starving themselves to death before it was discovered. So you don't want that kind of thing happening. Um, and that, that the other piece of this is that in any given community, if you see that the, these programs exist, partake of them, evaluate them. If they're not doing something they should be doing, report them. Um, I went to some board and cares that were so horrendous that I called the, the state agencies to report them. And I got a call back one time from this licensing agency, and they said, they said, as we're speaking right now, we are cleaning up that board and care and we're putting in a new manager. Because what I saw there was I, I left the place thinking people would be better off homeless. So you get involved. This is what advocacy is about. You expect mm -hmm. higher standards. You say this is not acceptable. Um, I'm right now involved with a little group of moms, and we're actually bringing to the attention of the L.A. County Department of Mental Health the various uh, step-down programs, residential programs, where we know there's active drug dealing going on. All right, you know, maybe they need to have a law enforcement officer as the, right. as the, the lobby guard. Maybe what are they going to do to put a stop to that? So... So you do a lot of work with the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Is that an organization you encourage anyone with a mentally ill loved one to join? 
Right. Well, I'm not a I'm not yeah. a, a an official with uh, NAMI, uh, but I've been a family member. I've gone to local meetings, and those are really great. In any community that has a local NAMI chapter, they do their best to support family members in crisis. They teach what they call family to family workshops, where they educate everybody about what mental illness is and what kind of resources they can have. It's through NAMI that I learned about conservatorships and special needs trusts. And so they do a great job, you know, educating people about the lifelong responsibilities and potential outcomes with mental illness. Um, in terms of advocacy, you know, there's a national level, there's state levels and local levels, and they all function in some ways independently of each other. But it's a great place to start. It's a great place to find other people who are in the same boat as you, which can help your own psychology as well. Uh, I, I said, I think in the book that 100% of all family members with a mentally ill son or daughter or sibling, they become depressed themselves. Yeah. And the sooner you get support from yeah. other people who know what you're going through, yeah, the better it is. And then find out what you can, what you can do in your own community. Um, there's also national organizations like Treatment Advocacy Center, org where they look into uh, all kinds of matters and try to help with legislation and changing the laws. Good. Thank you for that information. We talked very briefly uh, during the break on the YouTube channel that um, you have checked into um, basically the sole contract that you have with your son. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking the whole time you're talking how this has changed your life and especially how you were repeatedly being interrupted in the flow of your life to attend to this, you know. And um, I don't know, from my heart to yours, I'm like, uh, wow, you know, <laughs> yeah. Right, I mean, quite a dichotomy. I'm, some people already know me that I happen to be a feng shui uh, consultant. And so it's all about environment and harmony and balance. And, and yet I have this son who lives in a pigsty and, you know, I've diagnosed the places that he's lived as being places where people with psychological problems can live. and there's that question, which comes first, the chicken or the egg, you know, and, and so uh, it's helped me prioritize as would any profound experience, you know, I, I personally don't think cancer is a gift, but you know, you hear some people say that and people have other tragedies in their lives where they say, you know, it puts things in perspective. Um, in my mid thirties, I had a, a boyfriend briefly who was rather immature and he spent enormous amounts of time, you know, like planning his birthday parties and stuff like that. And at the time, my son wasn't ill, but I was a, just a parent. And I thought, oh, my God, he doesn't even know that once you become a parent, you don't really care about your own birthday anymore. It's all about the child. So, yeah, when you have a tragedy, when you have a challenging situation, it, for some people, they really call upon their faith, whatever it is. Um, they have to really try to figure it out in their own mind. What, why is this happening? What is to be learned here? Um, and I, you know, I have sympathy for people who don't, um, you know, the existentialist who doesn't necessarily think this is part of any divine plan, you know, uh, everybody has to find ways of coping. And in the memoir, I, you know, list a number of different ways I've been active. I just keep busy, um, 
Yeah. And, you know, and even in our darkest hours, I felt if my son never gets better, and I mean, I know moms who their sons have committed suicide, even if it doesn't get better for us, we can't let this life be in vain. We have to make sure somebody else finds the information they need to avert the worst case scenario. So that's, I feel, I feel inspired by that. As well. So, so where is Noah now? How is he doing? He's doing much better, although to the extent that he doesn't have much insight into his illness, he doesn't totally know or appreciate that he is doing that much better. I just know in the conversations that we have and the things that he's interested in now that he's doing better, because uh, there was a time when he was just staring at the walls a lot, literally. Um, so he's in a private facility, which is a great recovery model for the rest of our nation, really. And I know they get a lot of calls with people wanting to know, what is it that you're doing that works? Uh, so he gets a lot of support. There's a really high, you know, resident to staff, you know, uh, ratio where he's got a lot of people conversing with him and observing him every day. And he has structure to his day and he has fun activities presented to him, opportunities to do things that he wants to do, not just things that people think he has to do. And uh, it's a really friendly group of people and you know, one component, some people downplay it, but they serve really healthy food there and they put a limit on sugar. Um, and, you know, and if we could have decades ago, we had something called the Twinkie defense. I mean, <laughs> remember that mayor of San Francisco went nuts and he said it was because of all the sugar that he had. So, you know, yeah, the food that you eat, the nutrition or lack thereof can definitely affect your psyche. I mean, we're even now nationally talking about how vitamin D can uh, prevent or reduce depression. Uh, so they have at this program, the John Henry Foundation, uh, things that really do help keep people stable and they feel finally like it's a home. It's not Wonderful. just some, yeah. Yeah. So this is Loretta Brown, my guest today, Qatar Diamond, Noah's Schizophrenia, A Mother's Search for Truth. It's been so great to have you on the show. Um, you've got 10 seconds. Where can people find you? Well, I have a website dedicated to the book called noahsschizophrenia.com. There's a way to email me, of course. I also have some social media accounts set up, uh, Facebook, Twitter. I'm about to go on Parler, Gab, etc., where I'm going to be blogging regularly about mental health, advocacy, and also sharing other people's important uh, blogs and excerpts from other mental health resources for people. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And everybody out there, if you've got mental health problems, please reach out for help. Don't don't isolate and don't take yourself off your own medications. Anyway, blessings to everybody. Uh, stay safe and stay well and get ready for the next five to six weeks of change. And I love you all so much. Thank you, Qatar. Thank you.